Phase the Third, The Rally, Part One, from Tess of the D'Urbervilles, by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. On a time-scented bird-hatching morning in May, between two and three years after the return from Trantridge, silent reconstructive years for Tess Derbyfield, she left her home for the second time. Having packed up her luggage so that it could be sent to her later, she started in a hired trap for the little town of Starcastle, through which it was necessary to pass on her journey, now in a direction almost opposite to that of her first adventuring. On the curve of the nearest hill she looked back regretfully at Marlott and her father's house, although she had been so anxious to get away. Her kindred dwelling there would probably continue their daily lives as heretofore, with no great diminution of pleasure in their consciousness, although she would be far off and they deprived of her smile. In a few days the children would engage in their games as merrily as ever, without the sense of any gap left by her departure. This leaving of the younger children she had decided to be for the best. Were she to remain, they would probably gain less good by her precepts than harm by her example. She went through Starcastle without passing, and onward to a junction of highways, where she could await a carrier's van that ran to the southwest. For the railways which engirdled this interior tract of country had never yet struck across it. While waiting, however, there came along a farmer in his spring cart, driving approximately in the direction that she wished to pursue. Though he was a stranger to her, she accepted his offer of a seat beside him, ignoring that its motive was a mere tribute to her countenance. He was going to Weatherbury, and by accompanying him thither she could walk the remainder of the distance instead of travelling in the van by way of Casterbridge. Tess did not stop at Weatherbury after this long drive further than to make a slight nondescript meal at noon at a cottage to which the farmer recommended her. Thence she started on foot, basket in hand, to reach the wide upland of heath dividing this district from the low-lying meads of a further valley in which the dairy stood that was the aim and end of her day's pilgrimage. Tess had never before visited this part of the country, and yet she felt akin to the landscape. Not so very far to the left of her she could discern a dark patch in the scenery, which inquiry confirmed her in supposing to be trees marking the environs of Kingsbeer, in the church of which parish the bones of her ancestors, her useless ancestors, lay entombed. She had no admiration for them now. She almost hated them for the dance they had led her. Not a thing of all that had been theirs did she retain but the old seal and spoon. Pooh! I have as much of mother as father in me, she said. All my prettiness comes from her, and she was only a dairymaid. The journey over the intervening uplands and lowlands of Egdon, when she reached them, was a more troublesome walk than she had anticipated, the distance being actually but a few miles. It was two hours, owing to sundry wrong turnings, ere she found herself on a summit commanding the long-sought-for vale, the valley of the great dairies, the valley in which milk and butter grew to rankness, and were produced more profusely, if less delicately, than at her home, the verdant plain so well watered by the river Var or Frum. It was intrinsically different from the vale of Little Dairies, Blackmoor Vale, which, save during her disastrous journey at Trantridge, she had exclusively known till now. 
the world was drawn to a larger pattern here the enclosures numbered fifty acres instead of ten the farmsteads were more extended the groups of cattle formed tribes hereabout there only families these myriads of cows stretching under her eyes from the far east to the far west outnumbered any she had ever seen at one glance before the green lee was speckled as thickly with them as a canvas by van alslut or sailors with burghers the ripe hue of the red and dun kine absorbed the evening sunlight which the white-coated animals returned to the eye in rays almost dazzling even at the distant elevation in which she stood the bird's-eye perspective before her was not so luxuriantly beautiful perhaps as that other one which she knew so well yet it was more cheering it lacked the intensely blue atmosphere of the rival vale and its heavy soils and scents the new air was clear bracing ethereal the river itself which nourished the grass and cows of these renowned dairies flowed not like the streams in blackmoor those were slow silent often turbid flowing over beds of mud into which the incautious wader might sink and vanish unawares the froom waters were clear as the pure river of life shown to the evangelist rapid as the shadow of a cloud with pebbly shallows that prattled to the sky all day long there the water-flower was the lily the crowfoot here either the change in the quality of the air from heavy to light or the sense of being amid new scenes where there were no invidious eyes upon her sent up her spirits wonderfully her hopes mingled with the sunshine in an ideal photosphere which surrounded her as she bounded along against the soft south wind she heard a pleasant voice in every breeze and in every bird's note seemed to lurk a joy her face had latterly changed with changing states of mind continually fluctuating between beauty and ordinariness according as the thoughts were gay or grave one day she was pink and flawless another pale and tragical when she was pink she was feeling less than when pale her more perfect beauty accorded with her less elevated mood her more intense mood with her less perfect beauty it was her best face physically that was now set against the south wind the irresistible universal automatic tendency to find sweet pleasure somewhere which pervades all life from the meanest to the highest had at length mastered tess being even now only a young woman of twenty one who mentally and sentimentally had not finished growing it was impossible that any event should have left upon her an impression that was not in time capable of transmutation and thus her spirits and her thankfulness and her hopes rose higher and higher she tried several ballads but found them inadequate till recollecting the psalter that her eyes had so often wandered over of a sunday morning before she had eaten of the tree of knowledge she chanted o ye sun and moon o ye stars ye green things upon the earth ye fowls of the air beasts and cattle children of men bless ye the lord praise him and magnify him for ever she suddenly stopped and murmured but perhaps i don't quite know the lord as yet and probably the half unconscious rhapsody was a fetishistic utterance in a monotheistic setting women whose chief companions are the forms and forces of outdoor nature retain in their souls far more of the pagan fantasy of their remote forefathers 
than of the systematized religion taught their race at later date. However, Tess found at least approximate expression for her feelings in the old Benedicite that she had lisped from infancy, and it was enough. Such high contentment with such a slight initial performance as that of having started towards a means of independent living was a part of the Derbyfield temperament. Tess really wished to walk uprightly, while her father did nothing of the kind. But she resembled him in being content with immediate and small achievements, and in having no mind for laborious effort towards such petty social advancement as could alone be effected by a family so severely handicapped as the once powerful D'Urbervilles were now. There was, it might be said, the energy of her mother's unexpected family, as well as the natural energy of Tess's years, rekindled after the experience which had so overwhelmed her for the time. Let the truth be told. Women do, as a rule, live through such humiliations, and regain their spirits, and again look about them with an interested eye. While there's life, there's hope, is a conviction not so entirely unknown to the betrayed, as some amiable theorists would have us believe. Tess Derbyfield, then, in good heart and full of zest for life, descended the Egdon slopes lower and lower towards the dairy of her pilgrimage. The marked difference, in the final particular, between the rival vales now showed itself. The secret of Blackmore was best discovered from the heights around. To read aright the valley before her, it was necessary to descend into its midst. When Tess had accomplished this feat, she found herself to be standing on a carpeted level, which stretched to the east and west as far as the eye could reach. The river had stolen from the higher tracts and brought in particles to the vale all this horizontal land, and now, exhausted, aged, and attenuated, lay serpentining along through the midst of its former spoils. Not quite sure of her direction, Tess stood upon the hemmed expanse of verdant flatness, like a fly on a billiard-table of indefinite length, and of no more consequence to the surroundings than that fly. The sole effect of her presence upon the placid valley so far had been to excite the mind of a solitary heron, which, after descending to the ground not far from her path, stood with neck erect, looking at her. Suddenly there arose from all parts of the lowland a prolonged and repeated call. Wow! 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 From the furthest east to the furthest west the cries spread as if by contagion, accompanied in some cases by the barking of a dog. It was not the expression of the valley's consciousness that beautiful Tess had arrived, but the ordinary announcement of milking-time, half-past four o'clock, when the dairymen set about getting in the cows. The red and white herd nearest at hand, which had been phlegmatically waiting for the call, now trooped towards the steading in the background, their great bags of milk swinging under them as they walked. Tess followed slowly in their rear, and entered the barton by the open gate through which they had entered before her. Long thatched sheds stretched round the enclosure, their slopes encrusted with vivid green moss, and their eaves supported by wooden posts, rubbed to a glossy smoothness by the flanks of infinite cows and calves of bygone years, now passed to an oblivion almost inconceivable in its profundity. Between the posts were ranged the milchers, 
each exhibiting herself at the present moment to a whimsical eye in the rear, as a circle on two stalks, down the centre of which a switch moved pendulum-wise, while the sun, lowering itself behind this patient row, threw their shadows accurately inwards upon the wall. Thus it threw shadows of these obscure and homely figures every evening, with as much care upon each contour as if it had been the profile of a court beauty on a palace wall, copied them as diligently as it copied Olympian shapes on marble façades long ago, or the outline of Alexander, Caesar, and the pharaohs. They were the less restful cows that were stalled. Those that would stand still of their own will were milked in the middle of the yard, where many of such better-behaved ones stood waiting now, all prime milchers, such as were seldom seen out of this valley, and not always within it, nourished by the succulent feed which the water-meads supplied at this prime season of the year. Those of them that were spotted with white reflected the sunshine in dazzling brilliancy, and the polished brass knobs of their horns glittered with something of military display. Their large-veined udders hung ponderous as sandbags, the teats sticking out like the legs of a gypsy's crock, and as each animal lingered for her turn to arrive the milk oozed forth and fell in drops to the ground. CHAPTER Seventeen. The dairymaids and men had flocked down from their cottages and out of the dairy-house with the arrival of the cows from the meads, the maids walking in patterns not on account of the weather, but to keep their shoes above the mulch of the barton. Each girl sat down on her three-legged stool, her face sideways, her right cheek resting against the cow, and looked musingly along the animal's flank at Tess as she approached. The male milkers, with hat-brims turned round, resting flat on their foreheads, and gazing on the ground, did not observe her. One of these was a sturdy middle-aged man, whose long white pinner was somewhat finer and cleaner than the wraps of the others, and whose jacket underneath had a presentable marketing aspect, the master dairyman, of whom she was in quest. His double character as a working milker and butter-maker here during six days, and on the seventh, as a man in shining broadcloth in his family pew at church, being so marked as to have inspired a rhyme. Dairyman Dick, all the week, on Sundays, Mr. Richard Crick. Seeing Tess standing at gaze, he went across to her. The majority of dairymen have a cross manner at milking-time, but it happened that Mr. Crick was glad to get a new hand, for the days were busy ones now, and he received her warmly, inquiring for her mother and the rest of the family, though this as a matter of form merely, for in reality he had not been aware of Mrs. Derbyfield's existence till apprised of the fact by a brief business letter about Tess. "'Oh, ay, as a lad I knowed your part of the country very well,' he said terminatively, "'though I've never been there since. And the aged woman of ninety that used to live nigh here, but is dead and gone long ago, told me that a family of some such name as yours in Blackmore Vale came originally from these parts, and that twere a old ancient race that had all but perished off the earth, though the new generations didn't know it.' But, Lord, I took no notice of the old woman's ramblings, not I. Oh, no, it is nothing, said Tess. Then the talk was of business only. You can milk em clean, me maidy. I don't want my cows going as you at this time of year. 
she reassured him on that point, and he surveyed her up and down. She had been staying indoors a good deal, and her complexion had grown delicate. "'Quite sure you can stand it. Tis comfortable enough here for rough folk, but we don't live in a cowcumber frame.' She declared that she could stand it, and her zest and willingness seemed to win him over. "'Well, I suppose you want a dish of tay, or victuals of some sort, eh? Not yet? Well, do as you like about it, but, faith, if twas I, I should be as dry as a kex with travelling so far.' "'I'll begin milking now to get my hand in,' said Tess. She drank a little milk as temporary refreshment, to the surprise, indeed slight contempt, of Derryman Crick, to whose mind it had apparently never occurred that milk was good as a beverage. "'Oh, if you can swallow that, be it so,' he said indifferently, while holding up the pail that she sipped from. "'Tis what I ain't touched for years, not I. Rot the stuff!' It would lie in my innards like lead. You can try your hand upon she, he pursued, nodding to the nearest cow. Not but what she do milk rather hard. We've hard ones and we've easy ones, like other folks. However, you'll find that out soon enough. When Tess had changed her bonnet for a hood, and was really on her stool under the cow, and the milk was squirting from her fists into the pail, she appeared to feel that she really had laid a new foundation for her future. The conviction bred serenity, her pulse slowed, and she was able to look about her. The milkers formed quite a little battalion of men and maids, the men operating on the hard-teated animals, the maids on the kindlier natures. It was a large dairy. There were nearly a hundred milchers under Crick's management, all told, and of the herd the master dairyman milked six or eight with his own hands unless away from home. These were the cows that milked hardest of all, for his journey milkman being more or less casually hired, he would not entrust this half-dozen to their treatment, lest, from indifference, they should not milk them fully, nor to the maids, lest they should fail in the same way for lack of finger-grip, with the result that, in course of time, the cows would go azew, that is, dry up. It was not the loss for the moment that made slack milking so serious, but that with the decline of demand there came decline, and ultimately cessation, of supply. After Tess had settled down to her cow, there was for a time no talk in the barton, and not a sound interfered with the purr of the milk-jets into the numerous pails, except a momentary exclamation to one or other of the beasts requesting her to turn round or stand still. The only movements were those of the milkers' hands up and down, and the swing of the cows' tails. Thus they all worked on, encompassed by the vast flat mead which extended to either slope of the valley, a level landscape compounded of old landscapes long forgotten, and, no doubt, differing in character very greatly from the landscape they compose now. "'To my thinking,' said the dairyman, rising suddenly from a cow he had just finished off, snatching up his three-legged stool in one hand and the pail in the other, and moving on to the next hard-yielder in his vicinity, to my thinking, the cows don't give down their milk to-day as usual. Upon my life, if Winker do begin keeping back like this, she'll not be worth going under by midsummer. "'Tis because there's a new hand come among us,' said Jonathan Cale. "'I've noticed such things afore. To be sure, it may be so. I didn't think of it. 
I've been told that it goes up into their horns at such times, said a dairymaid. Well, as to going up into their horns, replied Dairyman Crick dubiously, as though even witchcraft might be limited by anatomical possibilities, I couldn't say. I certainly could not. But as not cows will keep it back as well as the horned ones, I don't quite agree to it. Do ye know that riddle about the not cows, Jonathan? Why do not cows give less milk in a year than horned? I don't, interposed the milkmaid. Why do they? Cause there beant so many of em, said the dairyman. Howsomever, these gamsters do certainly keep back their milk to-day. Folks, we must lift up a stave or two. That's the only cure for it. Songs were often resorted to in dairies hereabout, as an enticement to the cows when they showed signs of withholding their usual yield, and the band of milkers at this request burst into melody, in purely business-like tones, it is true, and with no great spontaneity, the result, according to their own belief, being a decided improvement during the song's continuance. When they had gone through fourteen or fifteen verses of a cheerful ballad about a murderer, who was afraid to go to bed in the dark because he saw certain brimstone flames around him, one of the male milkers said, "'I wish singing on the stoop didn't use up so much of a man's wind. You should get your harp, sir, not but what a fiddle is best.' Tess, who had given ear to this, thought the words were addressed to the dairyman, but she was wrong. A reply, in the shape of, why, came as it were out of the belly of a dun cow in the stalls. It had been spoken by a milker behind the animal, whom she had not hitherto perceived. "'Oh, yes, there's nothing like a fiddle,' said the dairyman. "'Though I do think that bulls are more moved by a tune than cows. Or at least, that's my experience. Now once there was an old-aged man over at Melstock, William Dewey by name one of the family that used to do a good deal of business as tranters over there. Jonathan, do you mind? I know the man by sight as well as I know my own brother, in a manner of speaking. Well, this man was a-coming home along from a wedding where he had been playing his fiddle one fine moonlight night, and for shortness' sake he took a cut across forty acres, a field lying that way where a bull was out to grass. The bull seed William, and took after him, horns a-ground, begad. And though William runned his best, and hadn't had much drink in him, considering twas a wedding, and the folks well off, he found he'd never reach the fence and get over in time to save himself. Well, as a last thought, he pulled out his fiddle as he runned, and struck up a jig, turning to the bull and backing towards the corner. Well, the bull softened down, and stood still, looking hard at William Dewey, who fiddled on and on, till a sort of a smile stole over the bull's face. But no sooner did William stop his playin' and turn to get over hedge, than the bull would stop his smilin' and lower his horns towards the seat of William's breeches. Well, William had to turn about and play on willy-nilly, and twas only three o'clock in the world, and a knowed that nobody would come that way for hours, and he so leery and tired that he didn't know what to do. When he had scraped till about four o'clock, he felt that he verily would have to give over soon, and he said to himself, "'It's only this last tune between me and eternal welfare. Heaven save me, or I'm a done man.' Well, then he called to mind how he'd seen the cattle kneel a Christmas Eve in the dead of night, 
It was not Christmas Eve then, but it came into his head to play a trick upon the ball. So he broke into the nativity hymn, just as at Christmas carol singing, when, lo and behold, down went the bull on his bended knees, in his ignorance, just as if twere the true Tiffany night and hour. As soon as his horde friend were down, William turned, clicked off like a long dog, and jumped safe over hedge before the praying bull had got on his feet again to take after him. William used to say that he'd seen a man look a fool a good many times, but never such a fool as that bull looked when he found his pious feelings had been played upon, and twas not Christmas Eve. Yes, William Dewey, that was the man's name, and I can tell you to a foot where he's a-lying in Millstock churchyard at this very moment, just between the second yew-tree and the north aisle. It's a curious story. It carries us back to medieval times, when faith was a living thing. The remark, singular for a dairy-yard, was murmured by the voice behind the dun cow, but, as nobody understood the reference, no notice was taken, except that the narrator seemed to think it might imply scepticism as to his tale. "'Well, tis quite true, sir, whether or no, I knowed the man well.' "'Oh, yes, I have no doubt of it,' said the person behind the dun cow. Tessa's attention was thus attracted to the dairyman's interlocutor, of whom she could see but the merest patch, owing to his burying his head so persistently in the flank of his milcher. She could not understand why he should be addressed as sir, even by the dairyman himself. But no explanation was discernible. He remained under the cow long enough to have milked three, uttering a private ejaculation now and then, as if he could not get on. "'Take it gentle, sir, take it gentle.' said the dairyman. "'Tis knack, not strength, that does it.' "'So I find,' said the other, standing up at last and stretching his arms. "'I think I have finished her, however, though she made my fingers ache.' Tess could then see him at full length. He wore the ordinary white pinner and leather leggings of a dairy farmer when milking, and his boots were clogged with the mulch of the yard. But this was all his local livery. Beneath it, was something educated, reserved, subtle, sad, differing. But the details of his aspect were temporarily thrust aside by the discovery that he was one whom she had seen before. Such vicissitudes had Test passed through since that time, that for a moment she could not remember where she had met him, and then it flashed upon her that he was the pedestrian who had joined in the club dance at Marlet the passing stranger, who had come she knew not whence, had danced with others but not with her, and slightingly left her, and gone on his way with his friends. The flood of memories brought back by this revival of an incident anterior to her troubles produced a momentary dismay, lest, recognizing her also, he should by some means discover her story. But it passed away when she found no sign of remembrance in him. She saw by degrees that, since their first and only encounter, his mobile face had grown more thoughtful, and had acquired a young man's shapely moustache and beard, the latter of the palest straw-colour where it began upon his cheeks, and deepening to a warm brown farther from its root. Under his linen milking-pinner he wore a dark velveteen jacket, cord-breeches and gaiters, and a starched white shirt. Without the milking-gear nobody could have guessed what he was. He might, with equal probability, have been an eccentric landowner or a gentlemanly ploughman. 
that he was but a novice at dairy work she realized in a moment from the time he had spent upon the milking of one cow meanwhile many of the milkmaids had said to one another of the newcomer how pretty she is with something of real generosity and admiration though with a half-hope that the auditors would qualify the assertion which strictly speaking they might have done prettiness being an inexact definition of what struck the eye in tess when the milking was finished for the evening they straggled indoors where mrs crick the dairyman's wife who was too respectable to go out milking herself and wore a hot stuff gown in warm weather because the dairymaids wore prints was giving an eye to the leads and things only two or three of the maids tess learnt slept in the dairy house besides herself most of the helpers going to their homes she saw nothing at supper-time of the superior milker who had commented on the story and asked no questions about him the remainder of the evening being occupied in arranging her place in the bedchamber it was a large room over the milk-house some thirty feet long the sleeping cots of the other three indoor milkmaids being in the same apartment they were blooming young women and except one rather older than herself by bedtime tess was thoroughly tired and fell asleep immediately but one of the girls who occupied an adjoining bed was more wakeful than tess and would insist upon relating to the latter various particulars of the homestead into which she had just entered the girls whispered words mingled with the shades and to tess's drowsy mind they seemed to be generated by the darkness in which they floated mr angel clare he that is learning milking and that plays the harp never says much to us he is a parson's son and is too much taken up with his own thoughts to notice girls he is the dairyman's pupil learning farming in all its branches he has learnt sheep farming at another place and he's now mastering dairy work yes he is quite the gentleman born his father is the reverend mr clare at emminster a good many miles from here oh i have heard of him said her companion now awake a very earnest clergyman is he not yes that he is the earnestest man in all wessex they say the last of the old low church sort they tell me for all about here be what they call high all his sons except our mr clare be made parsons too tess had not at this hour the curiosity to ask why the present mr clare was not made a parson like his brethren and gradually fell asleep again the words of her informant coming to her along with the smell of the cheeses in the adjoining cheese loft and the measured dripping of the way from the rings downstairs chapter eighteen angel clare rises out of the past not altogether as a distinct figure but as an appreciative voice a long regard of fixed abstracted eyes and a mobility of mouth somewhat too small and delicately lined for a man's though with an unexpectedly firm close of the lower lip now and then enough to do away with any inference of indecision nevertheless something nebulous preoccupied vague in his bearing and regard marked him as one who probably had no very definite aim or concern about his material future yet as a lad people had said of him that he was one who might do anything if he tried he was the youngest son of his father a poor parson at the other end of the county and had arrived at talbot hayes dairy as a six months pupil after going the round of several other farms 
his object being to acquire a practical skill in the various processes of farming, with a view either to the colonies or the tenure of a home farm, as circumstances might decide. His entry into the ranks of the agriculturists and breeders was a step in the young man's career which had been anticipated neither by himself nor by others. Mr. Clare the elder, whose first wife had died and left him a daughter, married a second late in life. This lady had somewhat unexpectedly brought him three sons, so that between Angel, the youngest, and his father, the vicar, there seemed to be almost a missing generation. Of these boys, the aforesaid Angel, the child of his old age, was the only son who had not taken a university degree, though he was the single one of them whose early promise might have done full justice to an academical training. Some two or three years before Angel's appearance at the Marlott dance, on a day when he had left school and was pursuing his studies at home, a parcel came to the vicarage from the local booksellers, directed to the Reverend James Clare. The vicar, having opened it and found it to contain a book, read a few pages, whereupon he jumped up from his seat and went straight to the shop with the book under his arm. "'Why has this been sent to my house?' he asked peremptorily, holding up the volume. "'It was ordered, sir, not by me, or any one belonging to me, I am happy to say.' The shopkeeper looked into his order-book. "'Oh, it has been misdirected, sir,' he said. "'It was ordered by Mr. Angel Clare, and should have been sent to him.' Mr. Clare winced as if he had been struck. He went home pale and dejected, and called Angel into his study. "'Look into this book, my boy,' he said. "'What do you know about it?' "'I ordered it,' said Angel, simply. "'What for?' "'To read.' "'How can you think of reading it?' "'How can I?' "'Why, it is a system of philosophy.' There is no more moral or even religious work published. Yes, moral enough, I don't deny that. But religious? And for you, who intend to be a minister of the gospel. Since you have alluded to the matter, father, said the son, with anxious thought upon his face, I should like to say, once for all, that I should prefer not to take orders. I fear I could not conscientiously do so. I love the church as one loves a parent. I shall always have the warmest affection for her. There is no institution for whose history I have deeper admiration. But I cannot honestly be ordained her minister, as my brothers are, while she refuses to liberate her mind from an untenable redemptive theology. It had never occurred to the straightforward and simple-minded vicar that one of his own flesh and blood could come to this. He was stultified, shocked paralyzed, and if Angel were not going to enter the church, what was the use of sending him to Cambridge? The university, as a step to anything but ordination, seemed, to this man of fixed ideas, a preface without a volume. He was a man not merely religious, but devout, a firm believer, not, as the phrase is now elusively construed by theological thimble-riggers in the church and out of it, but in the old and ardent sense of the evangelical school one who could, indeed, opine that the Eternal and Divine did, eighteen centuries ago, in very truth. Angel's father tried argument, persuasion, entreaty. No, father, I cannot underwrite Article Four. leave alone the rest, taking it in the literal and grammatical sense as required by the Declaration. 
and therefore I can't be a parson in the present state of affairs, said the angel. My whole instinct in matters of religion is towards reconstruction. To quote your favorite epistle to the Hebrews, the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. His father grieved so deeply that it made Angel quite ill to see him. What is the good of your mother and me economizing and stinting ourselves to give you a university education, if it is not to be used for the honor and glory of God? his father repeated. Why, that it may be used for the honor and glory of man, father. Perhaps, if Angel had persevered, he might have gone to Cambridge like his brothers. But the vicar's view of that seat of learning as a stepping-stone to orders alone was quite a family tradition, and so rooted was the idea in his mind that perseverance began to appear to the sensitive son akin to an intent to misappropriate a trust and wrong the pious heads of the household, who had been and were, as his father had hinted, compelled to exercise much thrift to carry out this uniform plan of education for their three young men. "'I will do without Cambridge,' said Angel at last. "'I feel that I have no right to go there in the circumstances.' The effects of this decisive debate were not long in showing themselves. He spent years and years in desultory studies, undertakings, and meditations. He began to evince considerable indifference to social forms and observances. The material distinctions of rank and wealth he increasingly despised. Even the good old family, to use a favorite phrase of a late local worthy, had no aroma for him unless there were good new resolutions in its representatives. As a balance to these austerities, when he went to live in London to see what the world was like, and with a view to practicing a profession or business there, he was carried off his head, and nearly entrapped by a woman much older than himself, though luckily he escaped not greatly the worse for the experience. Early association with country solitudes had bred in him an unconquerable and almost unreasonable aversion to modern town life, and shut him out from such success as he might have aspired to by following a mundane calling in the impracticability of the spiritual one. But something had to be done. He had wasted many valuable years, and having an acquaintance who was starting on a thriving life as a colonial farmer, it occurred to Angel that this might be a lead in the right direction. Farming, either in the colonies, America, or at home, farming, at any rate, after becoming well qualified for the business by a careful apprenticeship, that was a vocation which would probably afford an independence without the sacrifice of what he valued even more than a competency, intellectual liberty. So, we find Angel Clare at six-and-twenty here at Talbot Hayes as a student of kine, and, as there were no houses near at hand in which he could get a comfortable lodging, a boarder at the dairyman's. His room was an immense attic which ran the whole length of the dairy-house. It could only be reached by a ladder from the cheese-loft, and had been closed up for a long time till he arrived and selected it as his retreat. Here Clare had plenty of space, and could often be heard by the dairy-folk pacing up and down when the household had gone to rest. A portion was divided off at one end by a curtain, behind which was his bed, the outer part being furnished as a homely sitting-room. At first he lived up above entirely, reading a good deal and strumming upon an old harp, which he had bought at a sale, saying, when in a bitter humor, 
that he might have to get his living by it in the street some day. But he soon preferred to read human nature by taking his meals downstairs in the general dining kitchen with the dairyman and his wife and the maids and men, who, altogether, formed a lively assembly. For though but few milking-hands slept in the house, several joined the family at meals. The longer Clare resided here the less objection had he to his company, and the more did he like to share quarters with them in common. Much to his surprise he took indeed a real delight in their companionship. The conventional farm-folk of his imagination, personified in the newspaper press by the pitiable dummy known as Hodge, were obliterated after a few days' residence. At close quarters no Hodge was to be seen. At first, it is true, when Clare's intelligence was fresh from a contrasting society, these friends with whom he now hobnobbed seemed a little strange. Sitting down as a level member of the dairyman's household seemed at the outset an undignified proceeding. The ideas, the modes, the surroundings appeared retrogressive and unmeaning. But with living on there, day after day, the acute sojourner became conscious of a new aspect in the spectacle. Without any objective change whatever, variety had taken the place of monotonousness. His host and his host's household, his men and his maids, as they became intimately known to Clare, began to differentiate themselves, as in a chemical process. The thought of Pascal's was brought home to him. A mesure qu'on a plus d'esprit, a trouve qu'il y a plus d'hommes originaux. Le gens du commun ne trouvant pas de différence entre les hommes. The typical and unvarying Hodge ceased to exist. He had been disintegrated into a number of varied fellow-creatures, beings of many minds, beings infinite in difference, some happy, many serene, a few depressed, one here and there bright even to genius, some stupid, others wanton, others austere, some mutely Miltonic, some potentially Cromwellian. He had been disintegrated into a number of varied fellow-creatures into men who had private views of each other as he had of his friends, who could applaud or condemn each other, amuse or sadden themselves by the contemplation of each other's foibles or vices, men every one of whom walked in his own individual way the road to dusty death. Unexpectedly he began to like the outdoor life for its own sake, and for what it brought apart from its bearing on his own proposed career. Considering his position, he became wonderfully free from the chronic melancholy which is taking hold of the civilized races with the decline of belief in a beneficent power. For the first time of late years he could read as his musings inclined him, without any eye to cramming for a profession, since the few farming handbooks which he deemed it desirable to master occupied him but little time. He grew away from old associations, and saw something new in life and humanity. Secondarily, he made close acquaintance with phenomena which he had before known but darkly—the seasons in their moods, morning and evening, night and noon, winds in their different tempers, trees, waters, mists, shades and silences, and the voices of inanimate things. The early mornings were still sufficiently cool to render a fire acceptable in the large room wherein they breakfasted, and by Mrs. Crick's orders, who held that he was too genteel to mess at their table, it was Angel Clare's custom to sit in the yawning chimney-corner during the meal, his cup and saucer and plate being placed on a hinged flap at his elbow. 
the light from the long, wide, mullioned window opposite shone in upon his nook, and assisted by a secondary light of cold blue quality which shone down the chimney, enabled him to read there easily whenever disposed to do so. Between Clare and the window was the table at which his companion sat, their munching profiles rising sharp against the panes, while to the side was a milk-house door, through which were visible the rectangular leads in rows, full to the brim with the morning's milk. At the further end the great churn could be seen revolving, and its slip-slopping heard, the moving power being discernible through the window in the form of a spiritless horse walking in a circle and driven by a boy. For several days after Tess's arrival, Clare, sitting abstractedly reading from some book, periodical, or piece of music, just come by post, hardly noticed that she was present at table. She talked so little, and the other maids talked so much, that the babble did not strike him as possessing a new note, and he was ever in the habit of neglecting the particulars of an outward scene for the general impression. One day, however, when he had been conning one of his music scores, and by force of imagination was hearing the tune in his head, he lapsed into listlessness, and the music-sheet rolled to the hearth. He looked at the fire of logs, with its one flame pirouetting on the top, in a dying dance after the breakfast-cooking and boiling, and it seemed to jig to his inward tune, also at the two chimney-crooks dangling down from the cotteral, or crossbar, plumed with soot, which quivered to the same melody, also at the half-empty kettle whining an accompaniment. The conversation at the table mixed in with his phantasmal orchestra till he thought, what a fluty voice one of those milkmaids has! I suppose it is the new one. Clare looked round upon her, seated with the others. She was not looking towards him. Indeed, owing to his long silence, his presence in the room was almost forgotten. I don't know about ghosts, she was saying, but I do know that our souls can be made to go outside our bodies when we are alive. The dairyman turned to her with his mouth full, his eyes charged with serious inquiry, and his great knife and fork—breakfasts were breakfasts here—planted erect on the table, like the beginning of a gallows. "'What, really now? And is it so, Maidy?' he said. "'A very easy way to feel him go,' continued Tess, "'is to lie on the grass at night, and look straight up at some big bright star, and by fixing your mind upon it, you will soon find that you are hundreds and hundreds of miles away from your body.' which you don't seem to want at all. The dairyman removed his hard gaze from Tess, and fixed it on his wife. Now that's a rum thing, Christianer, eh? To think of the miles I've vamped a starlit night these last thirty year, courtin' or tradin', or for doctor or for nurse, and yet never had the least notion of that till now, or feel my soul rise so much as an inch above my shirt-collar. The general attention being drawn to her, including that of the dairyman's pupil, Tess flushed, and, remarking evasively that it was only a fancy, resumed her breakfast. Clare continued to observe her. She soon finished her eating, and, having a consciousness that Clare was regarding her, began to trace imaginary patterns on the tablecloth with her forefinger, with the constraint of a domestic animal that perceives itself to be watched. "'What a fresh and virginal daughter of nature that milkmaid is!' he said to himself. And then he seemed to discern in her something that was familiar, something which carried him back into a joyous and unforeseeing past, before the necessity of taking thought that had made the heavens grey, 
he concluded that he had beheld her before where he could not tell a casual encounter during some country ramble it certainly had been and he was not greatly curious about it but the circumstance was sufficient to lead him to select tess in preference to the other pretty milkmaids when he wished to contemplate contiguous womankind End of part one